The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 69.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the details we didn't have time for on the main episode, and hey, I gotta tell ya, we may not have had time for everything that was in the issue, but we sure had time for some laughs. Man, I have not laughed that hard in a long time having Kevin and Will along for the conversation, which it went in so many different directions. A few tangents, yes, but most of all, I just love the speculation, the puns, just all the insights that they were able to provide. So that was a great conversation, and uh, we will definitely have them back someday in the future. But, you know, I wanted to give you a heads up on what's coming along in the next episode. That's right, in our episode 70, uh, we have a special guest coming on. It's a milestone issue of sorts, right? Uh, 70 issues of Wizard Inn. So we are having a wizard staffer who was actually working at the magazine during the time of that issue's publication a gentleman named Greg Orlando who was the copy editor and that means that he was checking on all the articles he's adding little bits here and there of his own comedy as well as you know just checking for grammar and everything else so uh, he is a quirky fud guy he's been on an episode of the wizard files as an interview subject so if you want to go back in the archives and check that out get a feel for Greg but he will be joining us there Michael will be back as well I'm very much looking forward to the conversation that will spring out of that issue but hey Issue 69 ain't done yet, I'll tell you that much, so it's time that we check out Cap's Kooky Contests. Alright, our first one here, the Arcane Secrets of Hellboy contest. This says, ever wonder what inspires an artist to create one of your favorite heroes, say Hellboy for instance? Well now, you not only have the opportunity to learn what inspired Mike Mignola to create Hellboy, you also have the chance to win those secrets. This contest is just so dang simple it hurts. Simply fill out the coupon, cut it out, and mail it in. Winners will be randomly selected. So the grand prize, one lucky reader will receive a personalized collection of books and stuff, which helped inspire Mike in creating his Hellboy series. Items include an original piece of Mignola artwork and novels by Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Ray Bradbury, and others, each with handwritten notes explaining why they're special. Entire package valued at over $500. Man, that is pretty neat. Just the idea that you would get a handwritten note. They're not even doing this as an article in the magazine. Only the winner is ever going to find out what Mike Mignola thought about these items and why it led to creating Hellboy. Hellboy. That's pretty neat. Now, the second prize, five readers will receive a signed Hellboy, Wake the Devil, trade paperback, and a Hellboy Zippo lighter, items which aren't available until late this summer. Third prize, ten readers will receive a copy of Hellboy, Almost Colossus number 1, signed by Mike Mignola. Wow, that's pretty cool. And checking out the fire and brimstone legal stuff, contest over to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Dark Horse, their immediate families, and Ozzy Osbourne. He's like a crazy devil man, you know? <laughs> Ozzy, man. I just heard he had to cancel his tour because of his health. That is a bummer. But so many uh, decades of entertainment from that man. Uh, next one here. Offer void were prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. We're only kidding about Ozzy being a crazy devil, man. He is crazy 
Palestine stuff, but he's just a rock singer. Salt and Peppa? Now there's some weird stuff going on there. Yes, sir. <laughs> What, you don't trust the word shoop? They just want to shoop, baby. All right, a next contest here, though. The Painkiller Jane's Bride for Life contest. Go ahead, admit it. You've always wanted to be a superhero. Well, now you can, and it's as easy as taking a picture. Event Comics is launching a new Painkiller Jane series based on their 22 Brides franchise, and quite honestly, they need some brides. That's where you come in. Here's the skinny on playing this wacky contest. To become a perpetual bride, simply mail in a photo of yourself, females only, please, dressed as a potential 22 Brides character. Prizes will be awarded based on quality, creativity, and originality. And though men are prohibited from posing for these lovely picks and winning the grand prize, you're still entitled to second and third prizes by entering into our random drawing. And please, guys, we strongly encourage you to persuade girlfriends, sisters, grandmothers, moms, etc. to dress up and win. Heck, if mega-talented artist Amanda Connor can dress up and pose, we know you can. So yeah, so there is a picture of Amanda Connor looking like Painkiller Jane. She's got some red gloves, she's got her hair and sunglasses on, and she says, Dress up, wizard punks, how's about a plate of Swiss cheese? Jeez. <laughs> Grand prize. Believe it or not, one reader will receive her likeness written and drawn into a future issue of Painkiller Jane. Not only that, but this lucky girl also gets to have her persona used in perpetuity as part of the 22 Brides franchise. And if all that ain't enough, the Grand Prize winner will additionally receive a page of Rick Lenardi original art depicting her character. Woo! All this providing we receive a perpetual name and likeness release. A minor legal matter. Second prize. 15 lucky readers will each receive a copy of Painkiller Gene number one, autographed by Mark Wade, Brian Augustin, and Rick Leonardi. Third prize, 25 somewhat lucky readers will each receive a 22 Brides promo poster autographed by Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. All right, so that's pretty cool here. Funny thing on the actual uh, entry form, you know, they always like to add a little joke here and there, right? So, you know, you have to do your name and your address, all those things, but at the bottom it says, distinguishing birthmarks, scars, tattoos, etc. Now, I don't know if there's serious about that or if that's just kind of a fun thing to have you know when somebody uh, is on a wanted poster or something like that this contest is sponsored by event comics a real neato bunch of talented people now legal vows says contest is open to anyone except employees of wizard press event comics their immediate families and any chicks that are really guys don't mess with our heads like that yeah that one doesn't quite work these days uh next one offer void we're prohibited regulated or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof we're serious about that cross-dressing thing. If you pee standing up, don't enter. <laughs> I'd like to say this was just a way that they were hoping to reach more female readers, uh, but at the same time, it doesn't quite seem that's the case. All right, next one here. Wildstorm Productions presents Wildstorm's Ultimate Sports Contest. Love comics? Love sports? Well, here's your chance to experience two great tastes that taste great together. Wildstorm Productions will soon be issuing their Ultimate Sports Trading Card Set, featuring all of your favorite Wildstorm characters performing various athletic feats, sky surfing, snowboarding, bungee jumping, etc. So you're probably asking, how do I fit into all this hubbub? Well, by correctly answering some Wildstorm Ultimate Sports-related trivia, naturally you can find all the answers in the Ultimate Sports card set. You can earn yourself a free card set, some original artwork, or even a Jim Lee-signed snowboard. Jaha? 
All right, here we go. Correctly respond to the Wildstorm Ultimate Sports Trivia questions contained here by A, specifically answering the question, and B, citing which card number helped you figure out your answer. Simple enough? Cool. Winners will be randomly selected from contestants who have answered all questions correctly. Remember, kitties, be specific. Number one, what divine agents watch over Savant's hang gliding maneuvers? Two, how does Rainmaker stay aloft longer than her opponents in the ski jumping event? Three, on what part of the mountain biking course did Redbird crash? Number four, how did Caitlin put Gen 13 in danger of disqualification? All right, grand prize. One lucky reader will receive a death blow snowboard signed by none other than Jim Lee himself, plus an appearance by MTV's real world star Sarah Becker at the store where the winner buys his or her cards and comics. Oh yeah, we'll also throw in a complete set of Wildstorm Ultimate Sports cards. Wow, that's pretty neat. So at yeah, this time, they're just like, you know what? We got an editor who is now a celebrity through MTV. Let's put her in the mix. First prize, another reader will receive a one-of-a-kind original pencil drawing by J. Scott Campbell and one complete Wildstorm Ultimate Sports trading card set. Wow, all of this is awesome. Honestly, I'd, I'd rather have the J. Scott Campbell pencil drawing than a snowboard. Second prize, one more reader will receive a complete set of Wildstorm Ultimate Sports trading cards. This contest is sponsored by Wildstorm Productions, a bunch of West Coast sweethearts. Now, one thing I want to mention here, it's, it's, it's coming to mind for me that somebody on social media told us that they have a Jim Lee, at least I think it was a Jim Lee-based snowboard. It was some comic book snowboard. I know that there were other snowboards that Marvel were releasing that we mentioned a few issues back, but I'm almost certain. So if you're listening out there, you got to tell us because I'm just like, yeah, did, did somebody win this contest? And it's just, I didn't get all the details, but let's check out the sporting legal chance. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Wildstorm Productions, their immediate families, and anybody from MTV's The Real World. You're all irritating. <laughs> Uh, Jim McLaughlin, who is writing this legal text for the most part, not a fan. Next one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. And that guy Puck for the real world? He double can't enter. <laughs> so Puck specifically, still the bad boy in everybody's mind. We always like to give a little something extra to those of you who check out the half episodes. And, you know, we're always talking about the Patreon, how you're getting uncut, unfiltered episodes. Well, in the conversation on episode 69, we started talking briefly about the Witchblade casting call in this issue. I cut it out of the main episode just to put it here. Uh, Will and Kevin had some interesting takes on the choices. We didn't get too deep into it. But, hey, maybe Michael and I will after you check out this. This clip. Do you want to talk the Witchblade casting call or should we just jump to the next segment? Do you have any major thoughts on that? I don't mind. Like, I mean, it's certainly interesting, but Witchblade is one of those properties where like it was never like, yeah, it got a TV show, but I don't think anybody's going to fight us on this. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh no, I don't think Ian Deering should have been Bruce Wilder. Who the hell's Bruce Wilder? You know? <laughs> yeah. I was say, who the hell's Ian Deering? <laughs> oh, we love him. He's in all Star the Sharknado, Sharknado films. Yeah. Steve Sanders. <laughs> he was on, uh, 
about biker mice from Mars. He was great. <laughs> His finest role. Yeah. I don't think we have to get too deep into it. The only thing is like Sarah Pizzini. That's all you care. Who is playing Witchblade? And, you know, so and they the fact that they chose Yasmin Bleeth, I'm just like, a hundred percent. It looks like they just drew her into the comic. So I'm yeah. pretty sure that's that's who they had in mind. So I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, got it. That works. But, Especially if they stuck to her actual costume and don't get all like like conservative like they did with the TNT series. <laughs> I'm just wearing a nice jacket and some jeans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, are you saying you wanted not a TNT series? But a TNA series. Ooh, <laughs> yes. That's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> All right. So kind of fun, right? Just a little bit more freewheeling. This is the kind of stuff you're missing out on when we do our main episode releases. You want the Patreon release, I'm telling you. So get on over there, five bucks a month, patreon.com forward slash wizards comics. But hey, let's get into our next segment here. Oh, what do you know? It's Michael and I talking about the wizard casting call. All right. Well, you know, if it's time to talk movies, it's time to talk to Michael. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. I uh, always look forward to getting into these casting calls with you. For those of you who don't know, Michael has another podcast, Box Office 30, which is talking specifically about the movies of the 90s. And so he is very tapped in uh, to the, the talent pool. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm real dialed in. <laughs> I got the pulse of the 90s going. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if there's anything more 90s than Witchblade. Uh, it's, For sure. It's pretty wild to think about that of all the image comics and of all like the different series that came out through the 90s so few got adapted to live action and this was one of them but at the time of this casting call that was just a rumor that it was on the way that it was being developed so uh, Wizard decided to jump in early I guess and say hey it's not a TV series it's a movie what would we do so let's talk about this first Michael I mean the most important piece of the puzzle right is sarah pizzini who is going to be the wielder of the witchblade so yasmin belief what do you think so for that time i would say sure that's okay i just want to point out that i find it so funny that not only is witchblade a female lead character but also an italian female lead hey there you go <laughs> and i don't know if yasmin bleed is really that italian or could pull <laughs> off like you know a gritty nypd cop but that's what i just feel like is yeah if you're gonna be a new york cop you gotta be italian that's what the right. rest of the world thinks that's how you're all cops michael everybody's yes. from new york <laughs> the, the italians and the irish there you yeah. go <laughs> But yeah, so I, I think she is one of those people that definitely has the look, uh, you know, to fit the character 100%. But yeah, it's just like the persona. It's like, is she going to be able to convey how tough she is? I remember this one movie that I rented for Blockbuster back in the day. And uh, I'm trying to see what was the name of it here. Uh, maybe it wasn't her. You know what? I think it was actually Carmen Electra. I always <laughs> get them mixed up. It was a Carmen Electra movie. Never mind. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but, but funny enough. 
Speaking of Carmen Electra, I think she could carry Witchblade more so than Yasmin Bleeth. I think she's also more of a bankable name at this time. Like, I don't know if you, you're going to go to the theaters to see Yasmin Bleeth as the lead. You know, well, where Carmen Electra, you especially might. Especially right after another Baywatch co-star fails at the box office so hard with Barb Wire. You're right. not going to do that again. And you're right, because Carmen Electra just has like a little bit more of a glint in her eye. And she's got a little bit more of that, hey, I'm street tough look to her. So I was like, yeah, that would definitely be a, a solid alternate casting. Now, as far as tough businessman with a dark side... For Kenneth Irons, they want Michael Douglas. Gee, let's just grab the guy who was great in Wall Street. The villain yeah. of Wall Street, he'll work <laughs> in this role because it's it's almost emulated after, you know, the Gordon Gecko kind of a character in a way. It's interesting because like Michael Douglas does do a lot of brooding, but like the way that he's drawn in the series, he's like super like just like broad and like tough. And that's definitely not Michael Douglas. No. But I don't know how many actors were pulling that off with the physique and then having the gravitas. So <laughs> I guess that's maybe, fine. Maybe a young Jason Momoa before he had his tattoos and, and facial hair. <laughs> well, <laughs> Another this, Baywatch person. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's it's a amazing how many people came out of Baywatch speaking of which for Jake McCarthy uh they want David Chokichi he's back if you need a good looking blonde guy David Chokichi <laughs> This already feels like a made-for-TV movie. I mean, it, that's ultimately what it ends up being, and we'll kind of get into that here. But yeah, and also, the thing is, in the Witchblade comic, there's like one other character that's interesting, and it's not Jake McCarthy. So it's just like, put whoever in there. I don't care. But for Ian Nottingham, they want this guy, Philip Ree. They say he's in the Best of the Best, but that's just a name I feel like I've heard associated with a lot of martial arts pictures. I thought he was also in Mortal Kombat also. Oh, the, the more recent one? No, like one of the older, the, the 90s movie ones. Oh, was he in Annihilation? Or, or maybe the original one. I, I, I recognize his face, and I am not. I don't think of him from Best of the Best, but I think of him from maybe like Mortal Kombat or something like that, but I'm not huh, sure. okay. Uh, but yeah, but like this character is kind of cool because it's got like, you know, there's a lot of swords and like medieval looks, but this guy's kind of like medieval samurai, kind of like mystical, like he's got a lot of elements to him. And this guy, uh, Philip Ree's got a, a very intense face. So I dig that. But why don't you tell us who they had picked for Lisa Buzanis? Another, you know, very popular TV actress from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's Tatiana Ali. Again. This is feeling like a made-for-TV movie right now. And <laughs> Why and... didn't she make the jump to movies? She was effervescent and fun. I liked Tatiana. <laughs> I liked her too, yeah. Again, a, a fine casting call for what would be, I, I look at it as a made-for-TV movie, for sure. You know, she's so sweet and 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 kind of, you know, charming in, in the Fresh Prince show. You know, I don't know if she, how she would translate into like a grittier New York City crime drama in a way. Well, in the story, though, she is like, you know, the person who brings a little bit of levity because she's just like this young, you know, friend of Sarah's type thing. Okay. So kind of like, so, like like a Jubilee-esque kind of exactly. character. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also for uh, Sarah's sister, Julie Pizzini, they're bringing her back. Again, they just have their favorites. And Nikki Cox is their choice. <laughs> and I've made it very clear on previous casting calls. I'm always excited to see Nikki Cox in anything. She's so funny. She's got so much personality so i think that would be very cool plus this picture they chose it does look just like her so <laughs> they they didn't do too bad there in, in matching up the characters and now as we get into more of the supporting cast here this is what we had a little fun with when we were talking about it uh in our outtake but for bruce wilder 
They want Ian Zeering. <laughs> Again. What's your favorite Ian Zeering role, Michael? Sharknado? Yeah. It's like <laughs> shine the brightest. I guess so. Yes. He was he was a true action hero in Sharknado. Yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys who just seems like he knows how to have a good time, you know, on screen and elsewhere. She's like, yeah, Ian Zeering. He doesn't take himself too seriously. Maybe that's what we need in this movie that might be trying to be a little bit too heavy. But I know you have to know the guy next to him from his biggest role for Lieutenant Joe Siri. So we're talking about John Ashton here. Yeah. From Beverly Hills Cop, who plays one of the main buddies of Eddie Murphy. Oh, he's a great actor. I love that guy. He's so fun. I mean, he looks just like the picture that they put up there, so yeah. I'll I'll take it. And he's played a cop a gazillion times in most of his roles, so I'm 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 good with this one for sure. The one character that they have here next is one who I don't think, at least in the picture, quite matches the actor, at least as I imagine him. But for a character named Seltzer, who I don't even know, I guess he's just a, a bad cop. Uh, they have Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, who I I want him in all movies. He, he's yes. another one of those actors that is just like let him show up for five minutes in anything he is the best part of congo you know like well that's not true actually because uh, ernie ernie hudson is the best part and then you have tim curry then you have joey pants so yeah we got but he's even great in the matrix like he's just he's a fun like jerk character you know he, he plays that role so well the next one we have here is ms boucher they have you know everyone's favorite Jean Grey, uh, Femke Jensen, which the picture they have here, she looks like what's her face? Uh, Gina from Showgirls. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was just thinking. Yes. That, when I first saw the picture, I was like, "Oh, isn't it like, like Gina Gershon?" Yes, yeah. that's what it is. Like, that's the best picture they've got of her like, for the I record know. i haven't seen showgirls but whenever people talk about showgirls they're like gina gershon's the best part of showgirls i'm like okay <laughs> i'll take your word for it i don't know if much as i love saved by the bell i don't think i need to go that far and see showgirls but <laughs> getting funny. back to mortal Kombat casting here michael for michael yee they have the one and only robin show oh robin show you know I feel like he's an actor who maybe didn't get enough roles. He, he probably typecast is like, if there's no martial arts in the film, he's not going to be in it. But I love him in Beverly Hills Ninja as the straight man to Chris Farley. Like he's yes. pretty good at that. <laughs> and and just for the record, Philip Ray is only in Best of the Best. He's not, I thought he was in Mortal Kombat, but he's not. He's Okay. He's just... Yeah. That's what I thought. I was like, I've seen that movie upwards of 70 times and I'm pretty <laughs> sure he is not in, in Mortal Kombat, but. Uh, yeah, but so that's the casting that Wizard was presenting to us. But we know now that they actually did make that TV series on TNT. They did not cast Yasmin Belief. They cast Yancey Butler, who has a very similar look, like just as much as Yasmin Belief looks like the character from the comic, Yancey Butler does just as much. Like, yeah. Yeah, just like from a different angle, it's basically the same. What did you think about her characterization on that series, Michael? So I watched the pilot and like the first couple of episodes, and she does sort of portray that like New York City grit, you know, she's got for a like raspy a, voice. Yeah, yeah, she's got that got a really good voice. I, I find it interesting. I feel like if they had done that show a few years later, when they could have done better visual effects or could have pushed it to an HBO or something where they could have been more gritty and violent, it would have done better than, than it did just the single season that it was out. But she's fine in the role. It's 
one of those shows that they didn't know what to do with and they couldn't find its audience, but she's fine. Like I, I had no problem with her as the cast. What about you? Uh, I think, yeah, it, it's interesting because the, the, at least the pilot has some like cool special effects here or there, but ultimately it is, it's just a crime drama show. And occasionally she has a little bit of a power up with this gauntlet she puts on, you know? So it's kind of the same route that they would go with stuff like the 70s Spider-Man series. It's like, it's basically just a detective show and occasionally he puts on a costume. Right, he has superpowers. You know, he'll climb on a wall for a few minutes, but overall, he's just investigating. And so, I think like that—that that kind of is a is a bummer because, yeah, you would say like, what was the appeal? They totally missed it. Like the right. characterization in the comic is great. Like it is above most bad girl titles of the era, which is why I think it endured so long. But I do think that you needed a little bit something more, you know, to draw people in and a cool costume. Like it didn't have to be as like revealing Risque, and opening. Yeah. But let her have like a full body cool costume every once in a while that comes out. And like you say, probably like two or three years later, they could have had it all be like, you know, CGI, like going play a plated armor that appears on different parts of her body, different configurations or whatever. But I also think it, just remembering the show a little bit, it tried really hard to be like Highlander the series in a way. <laughs> yes. But it but it just didn't have that same kind of draw to it and probably not nearly the budget that that Highlander had at least in a lot of their seasons. Yeah, they, there was definitely a lot of flashbacks to all the previous holders of the Witchblade and the, here's yeah. the history and the things you need to know, yeah. Although I will say I I did like the actor that they got to play her sidekick buddy, you know, that they were casting in this case, they were putting Robin Show in that role. But I just think again because there weren't that many roles for Asian actors at that mm-hmm. time and when you look at, you know, the big complaint when we posted the Generation X casting call is that Wizard also did not put an Asian actress in there and people were up at arms. I'm glad that at this time, and I don't know if it was, you know, the creators, you know, Top Cow is saying you need to do it this way, but they actually cast an Asian actor in the role as it should be. And I, yeah. I think that is a big plus for the TNT series is they they did their best uh, to to represent in that was way. Was it on TNT for you? Because I think it was on yeah. the, like the CW for me or like CW. No I way. Th- I didn't think th- the CW existed back whatever, then. Whatever the w- the WB or WB? whatever. Huh. Know, so, did it bounce around? Was it on TNT? Maybe I'm pretty sure it was just on TNT. It was because like, yeah, I, t- oh, you're right. TNT. Yep. Yeah. If you said. pull up the promo, like it's like, ah, oh, TNT original, you know, they're all <laughs> proud of themselves. <laughs> this is a movie that I'm surprised again. It's not back like on a streaming service because it feels like an updated version of it would actually probably go over really well right now. So who yeah, knows? I mean, like if, if things like Umbrella Academy could get made, they yeah. could make a, a, you know, a 10 episode season season of this for sure like there's so many just to talk about like image comics there's so many image comics that didn't make into live action yet this is the kind of show that could spark like a you know a renaissance of those shows kind of becoming a thing and i could see it it's it's a cool story it's a good premise it's got a strong female lead it's got a you know a diver- diverse and interesting cast they could have some fun with it you know just a matter of finding pe- people who want to pay money for it yeah, and I, I feels like, you know, if, if The Sandman is now getting a second season on Netflix, it feels like you go Witchblade on, you know, some other streaming service, you know, Peacock or whoever, and then you spin off the darkness from that, just like they did in the comics. Because I feel like equally, those two shows interacting with each other mm-hmm. would be just as exciting as when the comics did it. So yeah. just something to think about there, Hollywood. Give us some more content. Give us some more excitement. Bring our comic books to life all these years later. But Michael, thanks for joining 
joining me again for another fun discussion. And I'll we'll be back happy soon. To. Yeah. <laughs> have you back? I'll be back. I just, I'm sorry. I got busy. <laughs> Let's check out the top 10 heroes and villains list. Number one, ooh, hanging on tight, it's Wolverine. Adamantium or no adamantium, nose or no nose, fangs or no fangs, fries or onion rings, boxers or briefs, aisle or window, it makes no difference. That woof and ream fella appears to be about the most popular Joe currently appearing in funny books across this great land of ours. Of course, me to be hard-pressed to tell you why. After all, if a mug like this showed up on our doorstep trying to sell Amway products, we'd slam the door and run. It's probably got a bit to do with the fact that everyone loves loves a mystery man. Oh yeah, there's that X-Men connection too. The Woofen Ream thing, I'm almost certain that that was the name that they called him in the What The comics that Marvel put out, so they're just having a little fun there. But up next here we have, in the number two spot, Spawn. Ouch! That's one nasty knock of the kisser Spawn's taken. Come to think of it, Spawn's kisser is pretty nasty all by itself. Just how do you wind up with a head that looks like that? The only possible ways we can think of are A, bopping for apples in 12 molar hydrochloric acid be playing Canadian junior hockey for two seasons without benefit of a helmet, face mask, or mouth guard. Since Spawny Guy's creator Todd McFarlane is Canadian, we're betting on the hockey answer. Looks like he wound up on the losing end of a few too many slobber knockers. Number three is Witchblade. Then there are those faces that are a bit more pleasant to look at. Submitted for your approval, one Sarah Pizzini, bearer of the Witchblade. Heck, her publishers at Top Cow think she's so darn pretty they're plastering her delicate features everywhere. On posters, on statues, all over the Marvel Top Cow Devil's Reign crossover. Maybe even action figures? Really? And a TV show, Double Really, for 1998. Yep, just goes to show you that leggy supermodel looks and fetching brown eyes can get you a bit farther in life than being bitten by a radioactive bug. Don't believe us? You soon will. Just look to the right and learn all the details. Number four is Spider-Man. I like the continuity of these entries this issue. Ah, Spider-Man. We feel a bit sorry for the old chap. He's been through everything. Parents killed, uncle killed, friends killed, girlfriend killed, cloned, forced to drive that insane spider-mobile dune buggy, etc. Makes you think that with great power there comes great pains in the ass. We're willing to bet that if given the choice, Peter Parker would have chosen to never have been bitten by the radioactive spider that gave him his powers. He'd much rather just take newspaper photos, eat takeout Chinese food, and get a little something-something from his wife, Mary Jane. Hmm, yeah. I mean, Spidey, you know, was definitely getting back to his roots, it felt like at this point in time. Uh, but let's check out our number five spot is Rogue. Think Rogue wears rouge? You know, that reddish makeup the chicks put on their cheeks? No, not those cheeks. The cheeks on their face, gutter mind. Rogue's looking a little bit on the rosy side here. Perhaps it's just some well-applied makeup, or perhaps she's thinking of the prospects of her on-again, off-again romance with Magneto that's got her blushing. But the big question, does she really love Magneto or Joseph, as he's now known? Rogue or rouge? Does she or doesn't she? Or only her colorist knows for sure. <laughs> grabbing from some old commercials. Uh, number six, he's still on the list, is Dark Claw. He's half Batman, half Wolverine, and now he's animated. What's not to like? Kudos to DC and Marvel on several points. Bringing the Amalgam universe back, hip. Bringing Dark Claw back, hip, hip. 
and having the nuggets to do something different with them by drawing them in DC's animated style. Hip, hip, hooray! We can hardly wait for the 98 version of Dark Claw. Will it be Untold Tales of Dark Claw? Amalgam Team Up Dark Claw? And Night Nurse? Wait and see. Ah, uh, if only we had gotten a third wave. Uh, number seven is Fairchild. Ooh, green eyes. Ooh, red hair. Ooh, half a butt hanging out of spandex unitard. Think we just described Fanboy Paradise? Throwing a day off from school at a 64-ounce big gulp, and you're right. Well, everything except the day off and pop are brought to you in one package. Caitlin Fairchild. Any wonder why she's so popular? Throw in the fact that she's the strong, intelligent leader of Gen 13, and she's practically over the top. We had a nice Gen 13 conversation. Will gave us some of his thoughts as we were digging around issue 69. You know, there's so few people I feel like that uh, have delved as deep in this era as Will and I did to Gen 13, so that's just awesome. Now, number eight is X-Man. You know, this X-Man guy seems to be pretty popular with his wild, messed up hair, devilish grin, and glowing red eyes. That can't be why he's popular, though. If that was all it took, then the entire Wizard Road staff during convention season would be wildly popular. And believe you us, we ain't. So it must be the fact that he's yet another mystery man. A pretty confusing mystery at that. And yes, he's another X-Men hanger on. Number nine, more X-Men. Magneto. Jeez, Magneto makes four and a half X guys so far. Yes, we're counting Dark Claws a half on this list. Yeah, so they were counting like I was. If we hit five, we'll be one over the legal limit and the Earth will blow up or something. Magneto, or Joseph, if you prefer, is one mixed up mutant kind of guy. He's not sure if he wants to embrace his violent past or move toward a more peaceful future. That kind of inner strife in a character can lead to some great comic book stories. Or it could lead to something like the recent Magneto miniseries. Blah. Number 10 is... <gasps> Blink! That's it. Blink makes five and a half X persons. The next sound you hear will be reality exploding, which is kind of appropriate in this case, seeing as how Blink's popularity defies logical explanation. First, she's a minor X character. No one cares. Then she dies. No one cares. Then she appears alive again in the alternate reality Age of Apocalypse. Now everyone loves her and wants her back. Guess it goes to show you, you always want what you can't have. But you know, when we get into those actually popular characters, eh, we gotta go to the other end of the spectrum. Now it's time to look at the lamest character of the month, or as we like to call him, the Mort of the Month. This time around we have Stone Boy? Ladies and gentlemen, we present Stone Boy. Gaze upon Stone Boy, he whose power is the ability to transform himself into a movable, inflexible stone at will, to become a veritable living statue. What's so friggin' heroic about that? All this clown can do is hang out in a sculpture garden and get crapped on all over by pigeons. Is that all you need to qualify as a member of the Legion of Substitute Heroes? Great. We'd rather be Newsboy Legionnaires. It'd get us more chicks. Stone Boy. Seems to me like Medusa would somehow be worked into his origin story, turned him to stone, but then he had some sort of remedy that only half brings him back. I don't know. Actually, now that I think about it, that's kind of the Tanuki suit from Super Mario Brothers 3, right? You just turn into stone and you can't do anything. Can't get hurt, but you also can't move. They should have called him Tanuki Boy. Super Mario Brothers 3 was several years old by this point. Ah, well. Missed opportunities. But we're not going to miss an opportunity to get into some more fun, so let's get on to checking out Wizard's opinion on the current crop of comics at this time in The Skinny.
Now, we obviously talked a lot about Heroes Reborn getting ready to wrap up, and there's a lot more conversation in future issues that we're going to be digging into. So it's interesting here that they are starting out their review section by talking about Jim Lee's Fantastic Four. What I'm curious about with this is when we had Brian Cunningham on The Wizard Files and maybe even another conversation we were having, kind of asked him about the reviews side of things and why they didn't like really traffic in reviews for very long. And he said at one point, they gave a low score to some Jim Lee sponsored project and Garib kind of stepped in and said hey he's a friend he's an advertiser uh, we need to bump up that score and I'm wondering if it was this or something else down the line but let's take a read here they say fantastic formula at high speed what you need to know when their spaceship was bombarded with cosmic radiation we're not going to get into this everybody knows the origin of the Fantastic Four alright the good the art is phenomenal solidifying Jim Lee's supremacy as the superhero penciler. There is detail in this art that is rarely seen. Leaves are individually drawn on a tree. Each window is drawn on New York City buildings and each rock on the thing's body has all the individual nooks and crannies. The designs for spaceships, monsters, and costumes show an imagination not seen too often in today's comics and complements the cosmic feel of the FF perfectly. The characters in this book have been modernized for the 90s, but you don't lose the sense of wonder that the classic stories had. The tales have a good handle of the FF dynamic. The fact that the force of our family despite having superpowers, and this dynamic or the occasional example of humor doesn't come across as forced. The dialogue is well done and fits each character. If you read the dialogue without any visuals, you know which character said what the bad. There's too much story crammed into these books. It's like the highlights of the first 50 issues of the original Fantastic Four series have been summarized and interwoven into the first six issues of this new series. The reader is bombarded with so many new characters, situations, and plot twists that he never gets enough downtime to appreciate the core FF characters. As soon as the FF is introduced, Mole Man, Namor, and his Atlantean supporting cast is introduced. Then the Avengers enter the mix, followed by Black Panther, Doctor Doom, the Super Scrolls, Silver Surfer, and Galactus. It's as if Fantastic Four was being treated as a 12-issue miniseries, with the creators crunching as much as they can in that space. The brisk pacing results in fight scenes that are often too short, the Silver Surfer vs. Super Scroll fight in issue 6 happens off-panel, and don't always deliver the anticipated impact. Also, there isn't enough background information given to new characters. We never learn enough about the Scrolls or Namor to truly care about their motivations. The book relies heavily on the fact that these are known characters, and assumes a reintroduction is unnecessary necessary. The buzz. Though Lee will step away from penciling FF, Brett Booth backlash will take over. Judging by the backup story in FF number 6, Booth can match Lee for detail, continuing the art style that has been established. Incredible art complements solid characters, but the rapid-fire pace in which the events unfold gives readers no time to see anything properly developed. So their verdict is a 4, okay? And just uh, for a reminder to all of you who don't pay attention, the highest is a 6, so it's just a good rating. Now, one thing that's interesting there, I didn't know Brett Booth was handling the back end of all the Fantastic Four stories. Awesome artist, very Jim Lee inspired, so that makes sense. But uh, it kind of explains also why he never got to do the Spider-Man stuff that it felt like he was so well equipped for that we talked about in our Dream Teams discussion. All right, now the next one here is the sensational Spider-Man, speaking of the webhead, says Spidey's fun again, but is it too much? What you need to know. Again, we don't need Spider-Man's origin laid out again. We've seen enough movies doing that for us. The good. This book is fun, plain and simple. What makes Spidey great is 
his flippant and wisecracking attitude, and this series definitely delivers his lighter side. After spending a hard day fighting the looter in issue number 12, Spidey can't get into his house because Mary Jane's Aunt Anna is visiting. This is a perfect example of Spidey's losing, even when he wins, situations that have always made him such an enjoyable character. The art really adds to the enjoyment of the book, too. Not only are the pages active, but they're full of visual humor. Spidey doesn't have to be saying or thinking anything, and his body language could be pretty funny. If you're a new reader, this book's real easy to jump into. The creators do a great job of recapping previous events and filling you in on who the heck all these characters are. And a little thing known as continuity, something sadly lacking in too many comics today, shows up when Stegron talks of being frozen in a glacier and a notation tells the readers that incident happened back in Thunderstrike number 20. Little details like that make readers feel like they're reading the piece of a vast comic book universe the bad. While Sensational Spider-Man is loads of fun, it's actually too much fun. It seems Marvel is overcompensating for the past two years worth of grim and gritty Spidey for cramming fun and lightheartedness into this Spidey title. And Sensational goes overboard. There's hardly ever a real sense of urgency or drama, and the dangers faced aren't real or drastic enough. A better balance between drama and humor is needed. What isn't needed is gratuitous, unnecessary guest appearances. Case in point, the Hulk's recent appearance in number 13 through 15 was completely unnecessary and actually distracted from the main story. And while the book's continuity references are good, Hulk's appearance makes absolutely no reference to the massive changes the Hulk's been undergoing lately in his own title. The buzz. A lot of fans are taking to Mike Waringo's rendition of Spider-Man, and the Spider-Man books are experiencing a revival since the conclusion of the Spider-Clone storyline. The skinny fans have complained for years, and Marvel has responded by going out of its way to make Spidey fun again. Unfortunately, the company's gone too far. It needs to tone down on the humor a bit and make Spidey more of a happy but problematic hero. Jeez, they just can't win with you, can they, wizard? They are also giving this book a four, so it's good, but not great. Uh, but we do know that you guys love your Mike Waringo, man. Uh, gone too soon for sure, but yeah, definitely people say that they started picking up this book because of his art and I can see why I mean it, it is fun again it's a little too cartoony for my taste especially in this era but it does have a lot of energy to it which is very fun this next one here is one that I've heard about but never read and I just know that it's kind of a character that always is in need of some new way to find its footing and most people point to this run as kind of the best version the power of Shazam that's right the simplicity loses this series magic. Uh-oh. What you need to know. Given the powers possessed by the wizard known as Shazam, teenager Billy Batson needs only speak the wizard's name and he's transformed into Captain Marvel, the world's mightiest mortal. The good. You can sum up this series in one word. Wholesome. This book's got a feel-good, light atmosphere to it and gets to the real heart of what being a true hero is all about. And at the center of this title is its star Captain Marvel, whose innocence and naivete is an interesting backdrop for a supremely powerful hero. His wide-eyed exuberance for the world around him is a great draw for younger readers, as well as for folks who like a 1950s-type comic book style. This is the kind of book you'd feel comfortable giving to a younger brother or sister just starting to read comics. With a majority of of the issues being self-contained an intro box explaining who the main characters are and a previously box in the letters page filling you in on what's happened before this series is super reader friendly the bad. Captain Marvel's youth and innocence may be a welcome change, but he's portrayed as his former teammate Guy Gardner once put it as Captain Whitebread. And unfortunately, his stories are very straightforward with no big twists or surprises. It's somewhat disappointing to see someone who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Superman fight lowly villains like a clunky old robot, an old woman, and a bunch of gangsters. Plus, Shazam has corny elements like a talking tiger named Talking Tawny and a character named Captain Marvel Jr., which makes the book a bit tougher to swallow. It's also disappointing 
that the teen character Billy Batson isn't fully explored, it seems Billy's school scenes are forced almost to simply remind you that Billy's a teenage kid. The book should take a cue from a good handling of teen school life in DC's Robin or Marvel's Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And while the art has good storytelling, it's not particularly flashy, further adding to the series' passive quality. For a book with a lot of bright, cheery characters, there should be lots more splash and action. The buzz. This book should get a lot more attention when Captain Marvel joins the cast of JLA later this year. The skinny. The power of Shazam's a good-natured wholesomeness is a bit too much to swallow. It's unappealing to a mass audience and seems much more targeted towards a younger crowd. So the verdict? A three. Oh, they don't like it. This is like Jerry Ordway was writing it, yet Peter Krause and Mike Manley on art. So this is like definitely something where I don't think there's a problem, again, with having a book that's aimed towards younger readers, because especially at this time, I feel like there were very few and far between, especially on the DC side even, right? Whereas getting a little heavy with the Vertigo-inspired stories, a lot of Garth Ennis. All right, the last one here, we're actually getting into some Acclaim comics, uh, formerly Valiant comics, with Exo Manowar. Hey, what do you know? But this is the Mark Wade, Brian Augustine Exo Manowar. So, cliched components blast excellent twists. What you need to know. Scientist Donovan Wiley permanently bonded with the mysterious Exo Manowar armor in order to save his life. Since the armor is property of the U.S. Army, he now reluctantly works with the military. The good. The series begins very routinely with a fearless hero in the Exo armor stopping terrorists, being heroic, blah blah blah. But for many of the cliches, you're giving an unconventional twist. For example, at the end of the first issue, the terrorists kill the hero, forcing the armor's technical analyst, Wiley, to reluctantly don the armor in order to save his own life. He would have been killed by a mile-high drop, and the terrorist ship crashes into the Washington Monument, destroying it. This system of taking predictable plot lines and twisting them a little bit keeps your interest. The concept behind the armor itself is interesting too, the fact that it's been handed down through history, origin unknown, until the US military seized it from the Nazis, leaves a lot of potential for interesting stories. The fact that the armor works off the wearer's fears and doesn't just protect him from everything is an interesting twist, which explains why the fearless exo-wearer in issue number one died. Also, the artwork complements this book well. Should be mentioned that the art is by Sean Chen and Tom Ryder. The armor comes across actually looking metallic, and the use of computer coloring effects is put to great use in this title. The bad. Twists aside, there are other cliched elements to this book that aren't fleshed out. Where did the ultra-high-tech terrorist group Rage come from? Why are they raiding U.S. bases? They should be more than just the routine high-tech enemy organization, but they aren't. There isn't much depth given to the supporting characters, just who is Wiley's assistant, Renata, who is thrown haphazardly into stories. Having Donovan merely say that she's his best friend isn't enough for readers. And if you took Wiley's dialogue out of the book, you'd swear that the Flash's Wally West was saying it. And like Wiley, West is a smart aleck, young hero, unsure of himself, and fearful of a big commitment to his girlfriend. And hey, the two titles share the same writing team of Mark Wade and Brian Augustine. More effort should be made to distinguish Wiley as a different character. The Buzz, Wade has announced that he plans on cutting back his exo duty from writer to story consultant with Augustine flying solo, and the new art team of Scott Eaton and Pam Eklund have taken over with issue five. The skinny, though having a good handling of armored heroes with flashy action and some twists, the lack of character depth and development leaves us wanting more. And they give it a rating of three. Yeah, I've talked about this before, how I love the original Valiant version of Exo Manowar, and I think what they're missing here is they're focusing on the armor when Mark Wade takes over. It's like, oh, the armor is the thing, the armor has a history, and the character you get, you know, he's, yeah, basically like a Kyle Rayner type, you know, oh, now I'm forced into this role, which could work 
work, but it's much more interesting to have like this barbarian out of time merged with this technological side of the future that he's not familiar with. Like there's so much more going on in that type of story. So I think they just missed the boat uh, when they tried to relaunch and reimagine a story for the armor. But hey, let's say we wrap up this shindig. So I want to say thank you to all of you for checking out this episode of Wizards Half, and I hope you are getting ready for episode 70. Like I said, Greg Orlando is going to join us. We're very excited for that. But also wanted to mention to you that you need to get on over to our YouTube channel. Why? Well, I mentioned it recently that Michael and I have a new series going on. It's Wizards Top 10, where we're taking pieces of wizard history and creating our own top 10 list. You know, Wizard was always doing top 10s, so we're just going to kind of throw it back at them and see uh, what we felt was the best and what they were offering in their content. So we've already got one video, which was the top 10 Spider-Man covers. Now, the other guy who beat him out uh, for the most covers in Wizard Magazine history was Wolverine. So we've got a top 10 Wolverine covers video that's available now to view on our YouTube channel. Yes, just Wizards Podcast. Of course, you want to get on over also to Patreon. Yes, patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. We keep adding more and more folks to that community over there. It's a lot of fun. Five bucks a month, you're getting a scan of the issue. The episode comes to you early, uncut, so you're getting sometimes 20, 30 minutes of extra conversation that is added because we do a lot of talking and sometimes just for flow, we're cutting stuff out. You want it unfiltered. You want it all. So that's there as well as other little perks that we are getting ready to add to the mix. I do want to also mention our Facebook group, Wizards, the Podcast Guide to Comics. A lot of folks have been jumping over there to have a conversation with us as well. Michael is the one who's going to be handling that. So if you feel like you uh, hear too much from me, you'd rather get Michael's point of view on things, then go on over to Facebook, join up, and we'll be happy to let you in on the conversation. A lot of familiar faces. If you're seeing people like Gabe and Will and Kevin, who were just on the episodes, a lot of friends from the podcast are jumping over there just because they want to talk more about Wizard. There's a reason they wanted to be on the show. Of course, you can find us on social media each and every day at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. And if you want to buy something from our Public store, just find Wizards, the podcast guide to comics over there. Get ready for convention season. Show people you love what we're doing over on this side. Of course, leave us a five-star review, why don't you, on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform where you have that opportunity. All it does is help the show grow, and guys, it is growing. It's all thanks to you. So until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.